Kevin Markwick. Oakfield FM. Richard. Well, you knew that anyway. From 1976. Uh, apparently released on the 23rd of April 1976. 
I was way too cool to listen to uh, Cliff Richard in 76. Uh, may not be true. Hello, it's Kevin Markwick here again on our trawl through the 1970s cinema. Over halfway through the decade then. Don't worry, it'll soon be over. The first uh, commercial Concord, Concord, Concord flight takes off in 1976. I really should practice this rubbish, shouldn't I? John Curry uh, became the first British skater to win gold at the 1976 Winter Olympics. And we seem to be in a cod war with Iceland. Not a cold war, though it's probably quite cold up there. Brotherhood of Man won the Eurovision Song Contest and the Sex Pistols went on nationwide and swore all over the place. I remember that, we did it in English. Mr. Winston showed us the showed us the video for some reason. Not entirely sure why. It was also the infamous summer of the heat wave. I had to suck the water out of the bath to uh, water my mum's vegetables. It was not pleasant because everyone else had had a bath first. Water shortages, all sorts. Uh, I guess that hot summer wasn't going to help cinemas much, but. Uh, Remember how we hit a new low last week in 1975 with 116 million admissions? Well, it was still plummeting south. In 1976, UK admissions fell to 103 million. That's why you tune in to this show, for all the happy news about cinema in the 1970s. It would actually stabilise a bit after that, uh, until the end of the decade, and then take a terrible further lurch towards oblivion uh, from 1980. Happy days. So, what was going on in our cinema in Uckfield? That's what this show is. It's me talking to you about uh, and playing you music from the cinema of the 1970s. Kind of uh, through two, from two points of view, really, from a film nut growing up in a cinema and also from the sort of uh, the struggle of the provincial cinema to keep going through the 70s. My cinema that uh, has been in the family a long time. I'm still there. Uh, the Picture House Cinema in Uckfield. Uh, my family work with me now and... And my dad's struggle to keep it all afloat continued. Uh, the programme was still a mixture of the new and old, and it would be well into the 80s before all films were new, actually. Um, presumably because the old ones were all on VHS. I don't know. Or pirate video, that was a thing, wasn't it? Oh, I saw that, mate. I saw that on pirate. Yeah. Um, so... A new old film to start the year, The Political Thriller, Three Days of the Condor, directed by Sidney Pollack, with our old chum Robert Redford, who we've done a lot, haven't we, in the last few weeks, and Faye Dunaway. Thank you. 
Dave Grusin's rather groovy score, you have to say, uh, for Three Days of the Condor. Probably, if we're honest, less substantial than it thinks it is. And despite a slightly strange misogynistic, <laughs> misogynistic streak, I am going to start reading this stuff. Honestly, it takes so long to write it, I'm going to start reading it back before I have to say it out loud. Uh, in the middle... The misun jeez. Oh, the misogynistic streak in the middle, it's all great fun. Not the misogynistic streak. That's not great fun, that's a bad thing. But the film's great fun. Uh I first saw it in Eastbourne actually, so uh it must have been a bit of a filler by the time it played upfield. Two hundred and ninety admissions in five days on January the nineteenth, having been released in the UK in October nineteen seventy-five. I saw it in a second feature with a film called Posse with Kurt Douglas. It was a western. Hmm. We didn't play that with it. We played Romance with a Double Bass. Uh, that was a short film, popular short film, featuring a naked John Cleese and Connie Booth trying to get home after having their clothes, clothes stolen. And he kind of hides the nudie lady inside his big double bass cabinet thing. Well, not cabinet, is it? You know what I mean. Anyway, by 1975, the heyday of my beloved disaster movie was over, and the sound of the barrel being scraped was starting to be heard in the distance. Earthquake had been a massive success in the US, largely because of the gimmick of Sensoround, which was basically a very large, well, many very large bass speakers pumping very low frequency sound at high volume, if you like. So it's uh, almost inaudible, you can't hear it, you just feel it uh, for the earthquake sequences. Uh, when Universal tested it at Grauman's Chinese in Hollywood, it caused a great big crack in the ceiling and all the stock on the shelves to vibrate off. So they basically put a net over the ceiling to protect the audience from falling debris. Does this seem sensible? Like all gimmicks, it didn't actually improve the quality of the film and Earthquake actually wasn't that very good at all. The cast didn't quite have the star wattage of the towering inferno the year before. Charlton Heston and Ava Gardner were getting a bit long in the tooth. What had been a big hit in the US, though, didn't translate to Arkfield. And without the sense around gimmick, I think I seem to remember my dad saying, oh, we just turn it up. <laughs> just turn it up during the earthquakey bits. Yeah, not quite the same effect, is it, Dad? There were a few other films in Sense Around. There was the Roller Coaster, I believe, and they put a Battlestar Galactica film out in Sense Around, which is a bit weird. TV movie in Sense Around. Um, didn't last, like all these gimmicks, 3D and all that kind of stuff. Um, 1,180 admissions in two weeks, because it had to play two weeks, so it must have still been a big film by then on February the 12th, 1976. Not great. Um, I've got the Blu-ray if you want to borrow it. It's not, nah. Don't bother. And it was actually John Williams' last uh, disaster movie score. As you can imagine, in the mid-70s, we've got quite a bit of John Williams tonight.
John Williams' score for Earthquake, where they were trying to convince us that Lorne Green was Ava Gardner's dad. <laughs> Which was ridiculous. I mean, they were about... I think she was older than him. Was it Lorne Green? Oh, I can't remember. It wasn't convincing anyway. You're listening to Kevin Markwick. It's Huckfield FM on a Monday night. We're going through the 1970s. And if you went to the cinema in the 70s, or you went to my cinema in the 1970s, please do get in touch and let me know uh, if you're enjoying the show or if you have any memories, that would be great to hear. At Kevin Markwick on Twitter. There's the Kevin Markwick page on Facebook. You can even email the studio, uh, studio at uckfieldfm.co.uk. Or you can even go and interact online on the Upfield FM website. There's a kind of talky thing that you can do. Right, uh, I'm, as, as usual, running horribly over. So um, we'll have a break. And when I come back, something very... Um, yeah, I'd be surprised if anyone remembers that. Anyway, let's have a break. And uh, that's what we'll do. Get with it, young man, get in the swing All the ice cream is that cool zing So make the evening a regular ball Get the refreshment that's got it all Cool man, like ice cream Get yours now Kevin Markwick 105, Uckfield FM He's more machine now than man Twisted and evil Ask anyone who knows me, and they'll tell you I'm as friendly as a poor constrictor sleeping off his lunch. Do I raise my hand to every child that calls me Hachi Monster as I have the bailiff drag him off to jail? Never! Do I shout and rage at every mangy dog that tries to bite me when I try to tie a tin can to his tail? Not likely. And do I burn with anger every time some woman faints as I stoop to give her stupid hand a kiss? Rubbish! Or seek male satisfaction from each yahoo on the block who owes me three weeks' rent and gives me this? He wouldn't dream of it. I'm as gentle as a fall of summer rain. And my kindness would put Santa Claus to shame. I'm Quilp, Quilp. You can call me Daniel, scruffier than a spaniel, slippery as an eel, the real McQuilp of fame, as cunning as a weasel. Every little breezel whisper my name, hearing my home from home by the rat-infested river. I deliver smuggled wares, have a hot Havana. Here I dine alone on a load of rum and kippers, cheating on myself at solitaire. King of hearts is Mr. Dan. Dan! Quilpish to the backbone, stab you in the backbone, stinkier than a skunk, the smallest hunk of crime since Borgia did her grooming. And though to err is human, to quilp is divine. So if by some odd fluke you're looking for a villain, stoop a little lower and you're looking at a real and I'm dirty damn. The bottom of the barrel If it's nasty and immoral It's quilp C'est moi, le quilp Napoleon of scoundrels Why don't you stick around You love all of my burglar friends Stupenda quilp The louse as artful as a jaybird Just a bird of prey bird Waiting to pounce I'm just a no-count skunk Who has sunk as low as one can 
I'm a one-man plague of bats. When I sold my soul to the devil Monday morning, by Tuesday he was trying to give it back. He's a friend of mine. <laughs> Hurrah! Hurrah! For Quilp! For Quilp! Quilp the first of England! Quilp the curse of England, slimier than a toad. The road to Quilp is strewn with horrible intentions. Widows without pensions hurled from their rooms. And if the law comes round and I think they got my number, I'll look them in the eye and say as quilp as a cucumber. How do you do? I'm very pleased to meet you. I'm that fascinating creature called quilp. I'm quilp. Quilp. I think you get the idea, right? Uh, Mr. Quilp. Yes. Literally an old curiosity for you. Uh, Mr Quilt was a disastrous musical version of Dickens' The Old Curiosity Shop, produced by Reader's Digest of all people and starring Anthony Newley, doing his best to Anthony Newley as the conniving Mr Quilp. It worked for Oliver Twist. Why wouldn't it work here? Well, it didn't. It was dire. What Look it. And there's a tragic reason for telling you this that will become apparent later in the show. Does anybody remember it? Does anybody remember Mr Quilp? It was famous for being one of the worst weeks in our history. Uh, 219 admissions in five days. And most of those were in single figures. I think we had no one in on Monday and nine people on Friday. It's nil. Nil. Turning into a really cheery show, isn't it? And it strikes me, strikes me, how can you make a musical where the romantic, lovely Nell dies at the end? Nothing much sharp elbowed cockney business about that, is there? Pretty much the end of Anthony Newley's uh, film career, that's for sure. Uh, something good now, though. Uh, Norman Jewison's Rollerball.
Fox, Toccata and Fuge in D minor. Uh, organ soloist Simon Preston and the London Symphony Orchestra conducted by Andre Previn. I could be on, on uh, Classic FM talking like that, couldn't I? Uh, this was another film I saw in Eastbourne first. Not super loyal, is it? Um, I would go and... Why do I feel the need to do that on the side of my mouth? Not super loyal, is it? Um, I'd go and stay with my nan and just go to the pictures a lot, basically. Uh, she lived in Eastbourne. There were cinemas. I went to them. And uh, because they were circuit cinemas, ABC, and there was a the Curzon at the time, actually, um, they played the films often before we did, so I went to see them. Rollerball was a double A. I wasn't quite 14 at the time, which you had to be to see a double A. So I had a bit of a nervous time trying to get in, but I always seemed to manage it. It was actually released in September 1975 and played Uckfield on March the 21st for seven days. 800 admissions, which given the state of things at the time was in the upper bracket, actually. Um, it was a thrilling film to my not quite 14 year old eyes that beginning sequence the opening sequence where they're lighting up and getting the rollerball track ready that where they're playing the Takata and Fuge great stuff uh, the story of a future world now run by corporations Jonathan E is the world's most famous rollerball player a brutal game played on a circular track with roller skates and motorcycles where anything goes uh, its function is clearly to entertain the masses and keep them distracted from their lack of freedoms under corporate rule. Jonathan E, as played, or arguably non-played, by James Kahn, uh, he really kind of keeps it cool, is becoming uh, too popular for the liking of those in charge and asked to retire. When he refuses, the bosses make the game of rollerball more and more lethal, where killing becomes within the rules. Directed uh, with style by the great Norman Jewison and shot by Dougie Slocum, it holds up well. Some of the future tech is obviously hilarious now, but watching it recently, um, I was just as drawn in as I was 42 years ago. 42 years ago. Of course it's silly. Who cares? And the poster artwork is actually iconic. Fantastic poster. Uh, with Khan behind the football helmet, holding up the spike glove as drawn by the brilliant Bob Peake. Now, he's one of the best poster designers ever. Um, you'll recognise his work. Have a look online. Uh, he did the painting, the drawings for um, Excalibur, Apocalypse Now, all the Star Trek films. Very, very uh, distinctive poster art. We've got quite a lot of them. Some of them are on display, I think, in the restaurant, and some are on display in the cinema. But definitely worth looking out for. Uh, more of the score, most of the score, actually, for Rollerball's classical music, as conducted by Andre Previn. <laughs> Andre Preview. You knew I was going to say that, didn't you? But Previn did compose some music himself. Uh, this is a cue he wrote called Executive Party.
groovy, man. Do they say groovy in the future? They don't, they should do. That was Executive Party, which I believe is the scene where um, there's the Jonathan E. special on all the television screens. They were still CRT screens. Of course, nobody had heard of LCD screens then. And there was one big one and three little ones over the top and people were setting fire to trees and having sexual intercourse all over the place. Just like any executive party, really. Uh, from Rollerball in 1976, which uh, was... Uh, they made a remade it in the 80s. Was it the 80s? Yeah, I think it was. It wasn't very good. And I did watch it again recently, which uh, and it, it held, holds up nicely, so you can borrow the Blu-ray of that one if you want. Uh, OK, uh, how am I doing for time? Not too bad. I'm going to take a break and... Um, when we come back, we got some Pink Panther, and it would be King, some King Kong, King being a theme, <laughs> and oh, Tommy as well. Sunquash! Everyone goes for Sunquash. Oh, it's delicious. On sale now. Kevin Markwick, a better variety of music. That's a bingo! <laughs> is all inside your head she said to me the answer is easy if you take it logically I'd like to help you in your struggle to be free there must be 50 ways to leave your lover she said it's really not my habit to intrude furthermore I hope my meaning won't be lost or misconstrued but I'll repeat myself at the risk of being crude, there must be 50 ways to leave your lover. 50 ways to leave your lover. You just slip out the back, Jack. Make a new plan, stand. You don't need to be coy, Roy. Just get yourself free. Hop on the bus, Gus. You don't need to discuss much. Just drop off the key, and get yourself free. Slip out the back, Jack Make a new plan, stand You don't need to be coy, Roy You just listen to me Hop on the bus, Gus You don't need to discuss much Just drop off the key And get yourself free She said it grieves me so To see you in such pain I wish there was something I could do to make you smile again I said I appreciate that And would you please explain About the 50 ways She said why don't we both Just sleep on it tonight And I believe in the morning You begin to see the light And then she kissed me And I realized she probably was right There must be 
50 ways to leave your lover 50 ways to leave your lover You just slip out the back jet Make a new plan stand You don't need to be coy, Roy Just beat yourself free Or you hop on the bus, Gus You don't need to discuss much Just drop off the key, Lee And get yourself free Slip out the back jet Make a new plan stand You don't need to be coy, Roy just listen to me Hop on the bus, Gus You don't need to discuss much Just drop off the key And get yourself free Fifty ways to leave your lover Paul Simon, I had that on repeat. I mean, I know you couldn't repeat then. You had to pick the needle up and put it back at the beginning again. It used to drive my family nuts. Back in 1976, uh, when I believe that came out. Well, I hope it did, or I'm going to look like an idiot again. You're listening to Kevin Markwick. It's the Kevin Markwick Show on Monday evening on Uckfield FM. I'm taking you through the 1970s as viewed uh, through the lens of uh, provincial cinema, the cinema, the picture house in Uckfield, and through me growing up. <laughs> which is not a particularly pleasant sight, I'll be honest. 1976, I was hot and sweaty during the summer, like everybody was, and uh, probably a bit greasy too. I was coming up for my 14th birthday, so spots, probably a bit spotty. I think I'm still a bit spotty. What? Uh, I had to ditch to the devil a daughter before the, uh, the break because I ran out of time, and actually I'm quite glad I did. So, what should we do? Oh, I know, The Pink Panther. Yes, 1976 saw the return of Peter Sellers as Inspector Clouseau. This was actually the fourth film in the Pink Panther series and followed on from two good ones, The Pink Panther in 1963 and Shot in the Dark in 1964. There was an ill-advised uh, attempt to do the film without Sellers, director Blake Edwards or Henry Mancini in 1968 called Inspector Clouseau with Alan Arkin. I mean, I like Alan Arkin, but he's not Inspector Clouseau, is he, in the title role? Even worse, they were even worse than the Steve Martin ones in the 2000s, and they were pretty rubbish. <laughs> uh, Edwards had apparently tried to get a Panther film off the ground in the early 70s, but as his um, and Seller's careers were on... as his and Seller's careers were on the decline. United Artists turned them down. However, Lou Grade at ITC wanted to make a TV special with uh, Edwards' wife, Julie Andrews, and offered to stump up the cash for two feature films in return for access to uh, Julie Andrews. One was The Taramin Sea, which I believe had Julie Andrews in it, and the other was something that Grade didn't want to make, so he suggested another Panther movie. Uh, Edwards, needing to get his career going again, agreed as long as Sellers also agreed. Gray managed to talk Sellers into doing it and the film became a massive success, relaunching the franchise all over again. This time, Clouseau has become a bit of a caricature, to be honest. In the first film, do you remember the first film? Um, 1960, whatever it was, I said it earlier. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was just a bit bumbling, wasn't he? And then uh, shot in the dark. He was an idiot, but he wasn't as hapless and unself-aware as he is here. 
and the accent thing really started with this one a joke they would hammer to death over the next five films to increasingly terrible results this one though is quite classy christopher Plummer replaces david niven as uh, gentleman burglar sir charles lytton and herbert long returns as chief inspector dreyfus i'm doing a french accent aren't i sorry a performance that becomes increasingly mad the more he hates Clouseau. <laughs> With a twitching eyebrow, do you remember? Did good business in Uckfield. 1,361 admissions on April the 4th for seven days. And here is part of Mancini's score for Return of the Pink Panther. That's part of Henry Mancini's score for The Return of the Pink Panther. Which, I have to be honest, as a approaching 14-year-old boy, I laugh myself silly. In 
fact, a lot of the cast just couldn't keep a straight face. It seemed to be a bit of a beano for Edwards and Sellers, just to have a really nice time. But um, Catherine Schell, they just, in the end, they left her laughing in because she just would corpse every time Sellers would do his shtick. Particularly the, um, you know, the here's looking at your kid thing. And lots of physical comedy and keto and all that kind of stuff. I think it's very much of its time now. Um, they did revisit it with Steve Martin, but I didn't see it, to be honest. I mean, it must have been terrible. Anyway, trailers are one of the most popular things about going to the cinema. People love the trailers. However, back in the olden days of 1976, there wasn't a great big load of them like there is now. There was usually only one or maybe two, but they always related to next week. So there would be a day title, as we called it, scratchy old day title, that would say something like Sunday next for seven days on the screen or Sunday next for one day, Tuesday for five days, etc. Uh, there was no thought of running trailers for films that were way off, at least not in Upfield, and probably most independents were the same, I should think. I have a clear memory of the week after The Pink Panther Returns being used by my dad as proof of the limited effectiveness of trailers. Uh, we'd been nice and busy with The Panther, and all week we'd run the trailer for The Man Who Would Be King, a film that in theory was right up our street. High Adventure with Sean Connery, Michael Caine, a couple of roguish 19th century British army soldiers in India who go on an adventure into a strange kingdom where their plan is to help them form an army and defeat their enemies, returning with a rich reward. Plummer from last week's film plays Rudyard Kipling, on whose novella the film was based. It absolutely died, though. My dad was outraged. <laughs> That the excellent trailer, and it was a good trailer, I seem to remember, had played to all these people the week before, and none of them turned up the following week to see John Huston's rollicking adventure film. What's the matter with them? Uh, less than 500 admissions all week. And rollicking it was. Yes. <laughs> well worth looking for if you haven't seen it. Uh, a real boy's own adventure that just goes to show that nothing is certain in this business. And the score was by top draw film composer Maurice Shah.
The Man Who Would Be King, Maurice Shah's score for John Huston's really quite exciting adventure film that nobody came to see in Uckfield in 1976. Were you one of those people that came to Uckfield in 1976? I remember sitting through it on Saturday afternoon, really had a nice time. But I was obviously mostly alone. Um, now, King Kong, an interesting remake from 1976 that didn't get a look in at Uckfield. Not entirely sure why. Maybe he didn't fancy it. Although we did run it at the Tivoli Cinema in Eastbourne, which we had at the time. And it played there, I believe. Yes, it did. I don't have the numbers for that one. Um, King Kong had obviously maybe did his deal. Well, I'll, I'll bung it in Eastbourne if we don't have to play it in Uckfield. <laughs> He's do that sort of thing all the time. Um, King Kong had obviously been one of the biggest and historically important films ever made back in 1933. A film whose influence is still being felt today. Youngsters may laugh at its clunky stop-motion effects... But in its day, it was as impressive and as impactful as Jurassic Park or Lord of the Rings. So why would you remake it? Why remake anything? Well, maybe some films can be remade. But King Kong? Presumably to utilise more modern effects. Although, oddly, King Kong in this one is a man in a monkey suit. A sophisticated monkey suit, but still a monkey suit. This time, rather than a filmmaker trying to find an exotic location, they sort of updated it uh, as an expedition to find oil. It fared surprisingly well, apart from a legal ding-dong between Universal and Paramount about who had the rights to make a King Kong film uh, that Paramount finally won. It did well at the box office and made a hefty profit. Jeff Bridges is the star, and unknown uh, Jessica Lange was cast as the love interest stroke sort of Fay Ray part. With modern effects and a big finish at the newly built World Trade Center, replacing the Empire State Building. However, there's always a good reason to play a score by John Barry.
that's all right, isn't it? John Barry's score for King Kong, directed by John Gilliman in 1976, starring Jeff Bridges, Jessica Lange, uh, which made lots of money. It was made again, wasn't it, by Peter Jackson, which was just over-bloated and over-long and over-boring and over-horrible. Um, it's Kevin Markwick. It's Monday night. Uh, we're going through the cinema of the 1970s week by week, and we're up to 1976 through the lens of my cinema in Uckfield and through the nerdy, farty bum boy that I was then. Uh, so we'll have a break, and when we come back, uh, it's all that is pretty much all the heavy hitters, actually. Something special, really different. Tastes great. Frankie's spicy pork and beef sausage in a sesame seed roll. Topped with mustard, tomato or fruity sauce. Frankie's, the super hot dog. On sale at the kiosk now. Frankie's, from Lyon. Medication time, medication time. I love saying that. Medication time, medication time. This is an adaptation of... Uh, Mantovani's famous hit Charmaine uh, by um, Jack Nisha. 
from the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It has to be one of the greatest films ever made. Uh, Milos Forman's adaptation uh, of Ken Kesey's novel. The story of a malingering, fist-fighting force of nature who fakes insanity to get out of hard labour um, and get out of his prison sentence and gets way more than he bargained for, but not before showing the inmates some real life. Doesn't really do it justice, that, does it? It's way more than that. Another example of everybody involved at the top of their game. It was only the second film to win all five major Academy Awards. Best Picture, actor for Jack Nicholson as the troubled but not actually mentally ill life force, Randall P. McMurphy. Actress for Louise Fletcher as the controlled, passive-aggressive nurse Ratchet. Director for Foreman and for Bo Goldman and Lawrence Hoban's screenplay. By any measure, it's a remarkable achievement. And it was the first... Um, it was the first ex certificate film I saw and made a massive impact on me. I was so desperate to see the film. I literally stood all the way through it at the back of the cinema, hoping no one would notice me. It was certainly my introduction to more sophisticated cinema and helped me understand what cinema was capable of beyond crashes and bangs and explosions. Outside most, uh, outside of the family films, most of what we've been talking about in the series so far, I've come to after the event. But now, here in 1976, I'm old enough and spotty enough to collide directly with cinema and start to form actual opinions. Not necessarily especially coherent ones or good ones, but all mine nonetheless. Cuckoo's Nest would be the first film that I became acutely aware of how a character's actions could drive the story. Not that I was particularly able to articulate it in quite those terms as a 14-year-old. If only McMurphy had not fallen asleep waiting for Billy to finish with the girl. If only Billy had been able to break free from the tyranny of Nurse Ratchet and his mother. I was yet to fully discover the power of Jack Nicholson in this period. Later I would see the marvel that is Five Easy Pieces or Carnal Knowledge and and understand it would also lead me to find his performance in the shining a few years later a bit much i've reconciled myself with it now in fact i hardly notice its fireworks but for all his subsequent super fame and celebrity nothing was ever as good as the nicholson of the first half of the 1970s which reached its peak in one flew over the cuckoo's nest i recall finding the shot that Foreman holds of McMurphy waiting by the open window, the window to freedom, unbearable. He holds and holds and holds and holds the shot on Nicholson's face for an age. And in that moment, we can see where it's heading. In fact, it's uh, kind of foreshadowing, isn't it? Because the chief throws the, uh, he breaks the window to get out at the end of the film. It's as mesmerizing and as uncomfortable as anything in cinema. Uh, it was a reasonable success in Uckfield, playing May the 23rd for seven days, having been released in February 1976 in the UK and brought in 795 admissions. Presumably the Oscar buzz helped. It would come back quite a few times, though, all the way through to the 80s. It was a, another one of the perennial ones that kept coming back. Jack Nisha's score is also perfect. Here's the cue, play the game, where McMurphy scores a small victory over Nurse Ratchet by having all the inmates imagine they're watching the TV playing the World Series baseball.
play the game from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And the chief voted it was 10 to 9. I want that television set turned on right now. It doesn't get any better than that. Now. Tommy. Oh yes, another bonkers film with Jack Nicholson, although he wasn't in it much. Ken Russell's Tommy. Uh, this is a film that pretty much invented the rock video. A joyous and mad piece of British cinema based on the hit concept album that The Who had released in 1969 to great acclaim. I, of course, as you can imagine, adored it. Uckfield didn't. A paltry 290 admissions in five days. It was released in March 75, apparently, so no idea what happened there. Why so late? I don't care. I'm going to play something from it anyway. Nicholson does make an appearance as a doctor and sings brilliantly badly. <laughs> There's a doctor I've found can cure the boy. It's the perfect subject for Russell, the story of a deaf, dumb and blind kid played by Roger Daltrey who becomes a messiah of sorts through the medium of pinball and then regaining his senses... Um, everyone starts to follow him. It's full of wonderful Russell flourishes, including an amazing sequence where Anne-Margaret rides around in chocolate and baked beans. And in the film's most famous sequence, Elton John wears giant Doc Martens as he performs Pinball Wizard.
Oh, goodness me. That was um, Elton John, Pinball Wizard, from the incredibly, brilliantly bonkers Tommy in 1976, which is what we're doing at the moment. Um, his next film, Russell's next film, would be uh, even more bonkers, Listomania. Have you seen that? <laughs> that's just... That's off the scale bonkers. Uh, very few people came to see that one. Uh, and then he went sort of back on the rails. Well, he didn't go off the rails with Listomania. It was Ken Russell. He can't go off the rails. There's no rails that can contain Ken Russell. Uh, okay, so what's happening next? I've got to do a break. That's what I've got to do, because I'm running horribly over, as usual. It's new! Ching-a-ling-a-ling, ice pole. Lions may ice pole. Tops of ice pole. Squeeze up ice pole. Ching-a-ling-a-ling, ice pole. Taste it! Ching-a-ling-a-ling, ice pole. Fresh, cool ice pole. Orange flavor. Strawberry flavor. Ching-a-ling-a-ling, ice pole. Buy ice pole. Get an ice pole now. Ting-a-ling-a-ling ice pole. Kevin Markwick. Taking you nowhere Look at that sky, life's begun Nights are warm and the days are young Opening doors and pulling some strings Angel Then walk luck and you looked in time Never looked back, walked tall, act by Oh, 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 oh,
David Bowie, Golden Years. 1976, you're listening to Kevin Markwick. It is 1976. Can't you tell from my flares? And my high-waisty trousers. Actually, I never had high-waisty trousers. I'm not even sure I've ever had a waist, to be honest. But what we're doing is we're going through uh, the cinema of the 1970s as seen through... Uh, my cinema, the picture house in Upfield, and me growing up in a cinema in the 1970s. Uh, and if you're listening to the podcast, hello. Uh, thank you for downloading and thank you for subscribing. And do please let me know what you think at Kevin Markwick on Twitter or on the Facebook page, The Kevin Markwick Show. It'd be great to hear from you all out there. I know we've got listeners in America, we've got listeners in India. Um, and France, and Germany, and Austria, and all over the place. You mad fools. So, that was from the album Station to Station. Whilst not directly involved with Nick Rogues, The Man Who Fell to Earth, was recorded immediately after he had completed shooting, and features a still from the film on the front cover, actually. The Man Who Fell to Earth was another seminal work from the 70s that didn't play Arkfield at the time. In fact, I'm pretty sure when we ran the 4K print a few weeks ago, it was the first time it had been shown in Uckfield. I can't find it anywhere anyway. In all of the books, what I have. Rogue is one of the few British filmmakers at the time making challenging and exciting films uh, that didn't involve a bare-ass cheeky chappy trying to hide in a naked woman's wardrobe while her husband arrives home unexpectedly. Because that was everything else that was going on. Uh, based on Walter Tevis's book, it's a science fiction story about an extraterrestrial, played by Bowie, who lands on Earth trying to find a way to ship water back to his drought-ridden planet. If ever there was perfect casting, this was it. Bowie seemed for all the world like an alien creature anyway, particularly at that time. Um, there's a really good documentary, which you might find on YouTube, I don't know. It was Arena... Uh, Alan Yentob did, um, it was called Cracked Actor, and it was at the time Bowie was uh, in, in, right in the depths of his cocaine habit and shooting Man Who Fell to Earth, and it's uh, amazing really, he got as far as the heroes period to be honest. Rogue gives us a series of confusing and unsettling images and flash flashbacks that enhance Newton's sense of isolation. His relationship with Mary Lou, played by Candy Clark, introduces Newton to all the human vices, alcohol, TV, and possibly sex. Is sex a vice? Don't know. Earth is clearly the last place you want to be stranded as an alien. It's highly sophisticated science fiction, the like of which is increasingly rare, unfortunately. It was clearly a big influence on Jonathan Glazer's magnificent Under the Skin in 2013. You know what passes for sci-fi these days is capes and booties aimed at 12-year-olds? We don't get much sophisticated science fiction. Where's 2001? Where's Silent Running? Anyway, the soundtrack album was a strange affair and was unreleased at the time. Bowie was going to do the music, but then it proved too difficult, all the rights and negotiations and rock star stuff and labels and things. Um... But it was eventually released. I don't own a copy. I must seek that out. Uh, there were contributions from Mamas and Papas leader John Phillips, as well as this from Sto Stomu Yam Yamasha. Oh, I knew I was going to get that right. I do this all the time, don't I? I find the most difficult thing to say. Stomu Yamashta. <laughs> Wonderful music, anyway. And it's called Wind Words. 
Wind word. No, wind word's a word processing program. From the man who fell to earth. By Yam Ashtar. I wrote it down so I could say it properly. So, 1976 then. What do you think? A real hodgepodge. We talked about how admissions were dropping horribly across the UK and Uckfield was no different. In 1976, we scared up a total of 38,467 admissions, down from 41,000 the year before. I think being a, you know, I don't think it was a massive fluctuation at Uckfield, it was just rubbish. <laughs> to put that in context, last year in Uckfield, we had a total of 160,000 admissions, I believe. Uh, so you can see the difference there. Of course, the business is different. The film's newer, the facilities are better, and we have three screens. This was the issue that was becoming clear. One screen was just not enough. If we have a quick leaf through the book, um, we're clearly stuck between the old way of doing things, bringing back old films that do well, and trying to keep up to date where possible. Sunday is still the best day of the week and the half-term holidays are a major part of the income but playing stuff like ups and downs of a handyman for a week is doing the industry no favours. Look at that on YouTube. Yikes! Uh, there's a two-day booking in March. Sex life in a convent and the female bunch. Really? There was another one called Nurses on the Job and Line Up and Lay Down. Emmanuel was 1976 as well, I believe. That made you a bit sweaty during the summer. Now, a lot of this has to do with British quota. Um, we were getting uh, European softcore sex films, mainly because it was a quick way of filling the quota book, uh, if I can explain quickly. Um, when we joined the Commonwealth... Well, OK, so there were... Cinemas at the time, from actually from the 40s, I believe, had to show 20% British films. Uh, it was the law. We had to go and sign um, our life away at the solicitors and swear that our quota book was honest. So I think it was 25%, actually, British films had to play in all UK cinemas. Now, what happened was when we joined... The, and it was difficult to do that. It was, it was difficult. So... Um, when we joined the common market, of course, we couldn't differentiate between French or German uh, films. So they suddenly counted as British quota because every film had a registration number. It was a BR number, which was British, or F for foreign. Um, and there was all sorts of other shenanigans that used to go on with the uh, registration numbers as well, how they used to allocate product to certain cinemas using the registration number. I'll bore the pants off of you with that another day. But the BR number or the F number were very important because you had to put 25% BR numbers in your quota book and and because uh, it was the law and you could be prosecuted and sent to prison. So, of course, we joined the common market. Fantastic. Black Emmanuel 2 suddenly counts for British quota, which would explain why particularly uh, circuit cinemas, Odeon and ABC, suddenly just flooded themselves with all of this horrible softcore stuff. And that's not being a prude. It was just badly made, cheap. It was cut, you know? If you're going to do pornography, do pornography. But it, was, it wasn't even good pornography. So... Um, that's what happened and it just dragged the business down we wish later on i think it comes in let's get laid as a film you know and ah just i used to be really depressed at having to go to work with that stuff on people come to the desk and say one for the other one please <laughs> 
You mean the sexy porn? Anyway, uh, the other thing that's clearly important uh, were the demands of the distributor. Uh, this had a big impact as well in 1976, which leads us on to the next film and why, I mean, it's a big, big film, and why it was 11 months behind release. And I'll tell you all about that on the other side of this. He's not gone. That's the whole point. He's never gone. Probably the most recognisable piece of music in cinema history. What can I possibly say about this film, as has been said before? Well, and why didn't it play until November the 7th, 1976? It was very famously a 1975 film. Now, it was released Boxing Day 1975 in the UK, so why didn't it play? It had been a phenomenon in the US, <laughs> becoming the prototype for the summer blockbuster, and until Star Wars arrived two years later, became the highest grossing film of all time in quite short order. Universal spent an unprecedented amount on marketing, particularly on TV, which was unheard of at the time. It rolled out across America through the whole summer, and by the time it arrived in Britain on Boxing Day 1975, it was already uh, reaching fever pitch. Wikipedia reports it was released on 100 screens, which seems odd to me. That doesn't sound the right number. I mean, I, Wikipedia has got to be right, yeah? But I do know that we were offered it 
and the prospect of Jaws on release was almost too much for me to bear. However, my dad decided not to book it. <laughs> no! And why? Because Universal were insisting on a minimum four-week booking and 80% film hire, meaning that after VAT, 80% of the film's tape would go back to the distributor. Now, things were different then. Uh, it's against the law now to ask for more than two weeks. Um, but at the time, they could ask for what the hell they liked. And four weeks was the minimum booking on Jaws. And my dad was not prepared to tie up the one screen for four weeks, nor pay such outrageous terms. And besides, we didn't even open on Boxing Day in those days. Not that they to do with it. To say I was disappointed was an understatement. So, you might ask, what did we play instead? I mean, what did we play instead of Jaws? At that time, the greatest film ever made. Well, a rerun of Towering Inferno, the aforementioned Mr Quilp. Mr Quilp! I mean, really, with the hindsight of the release, uh, uh, with hindsight, the release of Jaws was obviously making it even worse than it might have been, I suppose. But really, and the aforementioned Three Days of the Condor that we talked about earlier, and a rerun of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Now, I love Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but at that moment, I loved Jaws more. So I went with my mum to see it at the ABC Eastbourne. Uh, in January, I believe. It was, uh, yeah, early January. It was packed. And it was everything I was hoping it would be. It made me jump. It, uh, it was just fantastic. Uh, proper cinema experience. And then I went and stayed with my nan. <laughs> Remember my nan? Uh, when I saw Rollerball, I used to go and stay with my nan in Eastbourne. Uh, and this was during the summer holidays. Um, and it was still running at the ABC in Eastbourne, actually. So I'd been on for... What would that be, like eight months or something? I don't think they took it off in the interim because it was just taking so much money. Uh, and I went to see it every day for a week. Now, Jaws was also the first film where the distributor insisted on separate shows, which is more difficult to explain. And I don't know, it's a bit boring. Was all the other stuff a bit boring? I don't know, whatever. Um, which meant that you had to throw everyone out at the end of every show because up until that point, cinemas ran what we call continuous which meant you could go in at any point so quite often there was a second feature and then a feature so if you came in in the middle of the feature you could sit around until where you came in in the middle of the feature again bizarre i mean it's a concept that's almost impossible to do to explain to anyone now but universal insisted that jaws was separate shows which meant that at the end of every show you got thrown out if you wanted to sit around you had to pay and go in again caused a lot of fuss and misunderstanding at the time, I seem to remember. The soundtrack album I bought at the time is still a treasured possession. Uh, I think I posted a picture on the Facebook page. If I didn't, I'll go and put that up there. Uh, and here's one of the best cues in the film, barrel, one barrel chase, when the great white finally makes an appearance for Quint, Brody and Hooper out on the orca. <laughs>
So we'll radio in and get a bigger boat, right? Nah, we got one barrel on him. Part of John Williams' peerless, really, score for Jaws. 1976, it was, finally, in Uckfield. So, all in all, by the time we finally played it on November the 7th for 13 days. 13 days, you know. Remember the no two Sundays the same unless he absolutely has to rule? Uh, Universal was still insisting on two weeks, even 11 months after the release. Can you imagine... It had been on the telly seven times now, if it was 11 months old. Um, by the time it came to Upford, I knew the film Upside Down and Inside Out. Now, it did odd sort of business. 1,674 admissions week one, and only 497 week two. Why do you think that was? I suppose, given its age, it's amazing anyone had seen it at all. 11 months of film that big that people so desperately wanted to see. They must have been somewhere else and seen it and would come and see it again. I don't know. I know he was very grumpy because I'd badgered him to play it. You know, when are we going to play Jaws? When are we going to play Jaws? When are we going to play Jaws? And um, the second week really upset him that it didn't take any money. <laughs> yeah, I see. Hmm. Anyway, um... Things were different then, of course, and I can understand why he wouldn't want to tie up the cinema for four weeks of one film. And I can understand why he wouldn't want to pay those terms. But with hindsight, surely it's better to be left with less of a lot than more of nothing. I don't know. And then it would happen again. <laughs> it happened again at the end of 1977 with You Know What. But we'll come on to that. Anyway, we'll play one more cue from uh, what is the greatest score of all time. And this is called Promenade, Tourists on the Menu.
Kevin Markwick. 105 Uckfield FM. Well, I've got to do this one. I was going to do all the President's Men, but I ran out of time. Sorry, Bob. Sorry, Carl. Sorry, Mr. Nixon. President Nixon. It's a fine film. Go and find it. It's great. I was a bit offhand. Sorry. So what I'm playing is one of my non-sync classics to take us out. We had this album... Um, it was played on a record deck in the projection box before we opened or before the film started because in those days back in 1976 you opened the doors 15 minutes before the program started none of this cosy waiting inside lark no you waited outside in the cold and the rain until we decided to let you in Who says things haven't improved? Uh, this is Burt Kempfer, I believe. Swinging Safari. We had a load of Burt Kempfer records. A load of James Last records. Nelson Riddle. And I haven't got a picture of the old single-screen cinema because 1977, coming up next week, is the last full year of one screen at the Picture House in Upfield. And I don't have a picture. I can close my eyes and see it, but that doesn't help, does it? Daft, really. So if anyone knows anyone out there who's got a picture at the inside of the cinema, please let me know. Anyway, I'll leave you now. we got uh, the news at nine. And I'll see you next week for 1977. And if you're listening to the podcast, thank you very much. Like and share and all that stuff. It really means a lot to me. It really, really does. And you can get in touch with the show at Kevin Markwick on Twitter. Let me know what you think. What you'd like to hear. Tell me to stop wittering on like a simple-minded horse. Anyway, I'll see you all next week. I love you all. Bye!